There is a lot of interest in the private markets these days and questions around whether they can continue to deliver the high levels of performance they have done in the past. One big topic of conversation in the last week has been prompted by comments from Amundi. The asset manager CIO Vincent Mortier likened parts of the private equity industry to a Ponzi scheme and warned that there may be some casualties in the next three to five years. I'm Céline Bujak, and joining me today is independent consultant Cyril Demaria. Cyril has been conducting research into the sector for many years and advising investors on asset allocation. We will be discussing what's going on in the private equity sector in terms of valuations, secondary sales, and performance. Hi, Cyril. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. So um, I want to talk to you a bit about private equity and private markets performance today. Obviously, one of the big reasons that a lot of people start investing in private markets is this um, idea that they outperform public markets and they can offer high premiums. Um, So I just wanted to get from you what your research has shown you in this regard and what you think about this argument. Um, Indeed. That's one of the main reasons, uh, the other one being diversification. Um, So what we have witnessed is that, indeed, if you use the public market equivalent method, uh, which compares uh, like for like the performance of private market funds with a set of listed indexes, then you will realize that on an aggregated basis, um, private market strategies tend to outperform the listed indexes. Now, the challenging aspect uh, to that is that first, uh, this is not constant. And that's something which I think a lot of us have a little bit of uh, uh, trouble to get our heads around. Um, we see that actually leverage buyout, for example, tends to outperform in specific macroeconomic conditions and tends to perform a bit less in other market conditions, namely buyout performs when you have disruption. So when you have like the aftermath of 2008, you get 2009, which is an exceptional vintage year. But then 2006, which is topish, where the market was working very well, basically um, um, uh, valuations were very uh, high, but also there was no real stress. Then it means that uh, the fund managers started to raise the money there. They invested at the top of the cycle, which was 2006-7, then they experienced a freezing part of the market, which is 2008 itself. And then by 2009, they did most of their investments, and then they couldn't capture really the main opportunities which were emerging at that time. So what do we end up with? We ended up with a 2006 vintage, which was very visible, uh, namely because of exposure due to some academic studies. And then after that, uh, conclusions were that for some reason, um, uh, private equity might not perform as it used to. Now, it's an isolated integer. And what we observe is that after that, then the logic was resuming. So um, it's easy to draw the wrong conclusion and assume that private equity is not performing as it used to. Mm-hmm. The second element, which is a compounding factor, is that it's very easy to misinterpret active integers. So the funds which are currently invested. We know from academic literature that fund managers tend to value their assets conservatively. They try also to um, be reasonable in their assumptions. And so uh, I wouldn't draw any conclusion with a vintager which is 
significantly not realized yet. So where the assets are still essentially in the portfolio. The third element that we need to understand is that private market strategies mature at different speeds. So whatever conclusion we can draw on large and mega buyouts in the Western world might not be applicable in small and mid-sized buyouts or in other strategies or in other geographical markets. So uh, in that sense, I think uh, it's a composite picture and uh, we have to be very careful in trying to do blanket statements about um, all the private market strategies. So when investing, actually, investors really need a lot of kind of specific targeted um, information and data points to be able to analyze, right? They can't just say, okay, private equity is going to do well, and let me just go into any private equity fund. What are some of the key characteristics you think that they need to think about when choosing funds? It's um, it's probably the most challenging uh, task for investors. Um, there are two, actually. The first one is to select the right fund manager. Um, surprisingly enough, you don't necessarily always to want to shoot for the stars. There are some investors who would rather have a more consistent, predictable performance, even though it doesn't reach a multiple of two or three or four or five times your money. They might be very satisfied if you can guarantee some consistency around one five, one seventy-five times your money. But this selection is consuming. You need to get access to the fund managers. You need to be able to do the due diligence. You need to be able to maintain the communication with them and then ultimately be able to monitor and reinvest in the next generation of funds. The second challenge is that um, there are some strategies which are performing when others don't perform. And so when you're a fund manager, the most important feature of your program is consistency and discipline. And that's very challenging. We're all tempted to think that we're very smart. We are in a way, <laughs> but we are our own worst enemy. We think that, oh, maybe that's time to do a little bit of extra venture, or maybe that's the time to do a little bit of extra distress debt. And the reality is that pro-cyclicality is the biggest danger. We tend to overdo it when we shouldn't do it because we cannot plan the future. The, 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 the point that we need to remember is that when we give money to a fund manager, he or she has five years on average deploy the capital. And I have no clue what's going to happen in six months, even less in five years. So instead of trying to be smart, we should be very disciplined and consistent because that's the best way to eliminate some of the risk and to try to uh, capture the most permanent part of the value creation, which is executed by the fund managers. And is there a concern that delivering performance is going to be a bit more difficult now across the different strategies? So, in a way, yes. Um, there are recurring concerns about potentially an excess of capital. Uh, this is a very difficult assessment. Um, because if you assume that there is an excess of capital, you assume that we reached an optimum, a plateau, right? And that whatever increment of capital coming all around is going to lead to an inflation of valuation, that basically it's not needed. The thing is that the market is extremely dynamic. Fund managers are extremely innovative, much more than 
um, what you would expect seen from the outside where everybody assumes that it's business as usual. And what we have witnessed is that over time, for example, growth equity, which has been the little brother of venture and buyout, has been underrepresented. And now if you look at the figures of assets under management growing, a big portion is coming from the fact that growth is catching up. Growth was the little one very quiet because it was lower risk, lower return. But now we see that venture has been growing very fast, that we need to diversify. Of course, buyout has been reaching a certain size as well. And so where do you turn? Maybe to growth. So in that sense, we could argue that maybe growth has not been reaching its full potential. But even if you go back to buyout, buyout, if you look at the amount of dry powder, um, it's been hovering around 800, 900 billion, right? If you look at the statistics, assuming that we capture a fair amount of the market. And, and, and now comes the question, is it like, you know, the, the sign of maturity? Well, yes and no. First of all, what we know is that there are more and more secondary operations. Second, we know that the strategies have been changing, shifting from for a corporate carve-out or, um, I don't know, public to private, very few still. And we have seen big ones recently. But leverage buildup is the new game of the day. So it means that you need maybe uh, to deploy capital in a different way, but maybe also in higher volumes. So it's not that easy to conclude that there is too much capital to be deployed. It's also, we have to look at what's going on on the ground. What do they use the capital for? And then, of course, the conclusion is um, maybe, as I said earlier, some of the uh, segments have been maturing faster, but others might still need a fair amount of capital. Mm. So there is still room for growth, potentially. Um, yes. So, uh, Cyril, you obviously must have seen this comment made by the CIO of Amundi saying parts of the private equity market looks um, like the, a bit of a Ponzi scheme. I just wanted to get your thoughts on this and what you think about the comments. I wasn't in the room, so I only got almost kind of hearsay through the press. So it's always difficult to judge and... Um, I assume that the gentleman is knowledgeable and, and senior enough to, to have pondered um, what, what does it mean to make such a statement. I think um, it reflects a broader, um, let's say, concern about the fact that um, secondary buyout could lead to, um, let's say, um, potential mistakes. Um, and it, it's probably related to two elements. The first one is that for a lot of people, buyout is just buying companies and leveraging up. If you, if you do this um, only, then after a while, indeed, there will be a limit to this logic because there is so much debt you can put in a deal and then, you know, the company can repay so much. But um, what we have to remember is that to be able to buy a company at 100 and sell it for three or 400, you have to create value. And that's one of the things which I guess the profession um, doesn't really communicate well enough. Often they just present a business case and it's always this marvelous deal and everything works out wonderfully. And then we share the profit with the employees. Everybody's happy. It's, it's a little bit Disney World, right? The reality is that <clears throat> when you buy a business, normally you have a very, very clear plan because you need to exit within the next three to four years. For example, one buyout could be that you implement um, 
an enterprise resource planning software because the company was family owned and then they were doing everything manually or with scrap of papers, Excel. And then suddenly, you know, there is a professional ownership and the professional owners, which are the LBO managers, want to have a clear monthly statement with, you know, entries and then be able to track it. This alone doesn't sound like much, but it's a massive undertake, undertaking. And once you've done that, you can sell it to one of your peers. What is going to do the peer? They are going to analyze the different lines of products that you have in the company. And then they will sort out, do we want to keep this one as a core or should we dispose of it? And once you have refocused the business, then you're able to pass it on to the third one. And the third one might say, now we are the national leader in this vertical, this vertical, this vertical. How about we internationalize? Maybe there is a misunderstanding about the fact that secondary or subsequent buyouts, whatever we want to call them, are not just here to continue it existing. There is a plan to make it grow in value. The second thing is um, um, that the value, the notion of value and price are very complicated to assess. Um, if I walk on the beach and I, I find a piece of driftwood, um, it might be very valuable for me because maybe I do some special art where I value this kind of thing. Whereas if you walk on the same beach and you find the same piece of wood for you, it might be let's say interesting because you can play with your dog with it the notion of value of this piece of wood depends on who i am and, and what i want to do so saying that because an asset is valued very expensively according to let's say a general framework a top-down framework is, is is a little bit of um, um, counterintuitive because it really depends who buys the business to do what having said that there might be deals which will not be successful. And that's part of buyout as well. There is a loss ratio in funds. Some deals don't work. But I'm making a blanket statement is potentially quite dangerous. So how do you uh, view asset managers or newer kind of organizations expanding into the private markets who may not have had the experience of transforming a business in this way, as you said, or... Um, they're trying to build up teams, but um, again, they haven't done this before. Yeah, that's very tempting. No? Um, I understand where they come from. If I was in their shoes, I would probably do the same. Um, there are a few, few elements to consider. The question is, um, um, if you're ready to weather a storm, uh, what we know, for example, from corporate venture capital is that the program tends to spring when everything is fine. The CEO feels like, you know, very powerful and knowledgeable and, and then they launch this kind of initiative. And then it's a little bit the pet project of the CEO. Then the CEO gets offloaded during the recession and then the pet project goes into the bin. So <clears throat> if you want to succeed, you have to be ready to weather the storm and to stick to your guns. That's the first. The second is obviously that experience matters. Um, I know that I'm, let's say, preaching for my own church. <laughs> I have the gray hair which goes with it, unfortunately. But once you have been go, going through a 2000 and then a 2008 episode, then you start to realize a few things. And that's really helpful. So hopefully the asset managers who want to venture in that well will be able either to attract a few of these kind of qualified profiles or make the acquisition where uh, the team has been weathering together, ideally, one of these market events. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I think it's a matter of um, 
Is it a strategic and conviction initiative or is it purely opportunistic? Said differently, if I see my margins and my fees fall in a certain area of the financial markets, do I go opportunistic to where the juicy part is still uh, apparently there? And, and that's going to make a big difference because if you start to line, line up these three arguments, so you do it out of conviction with a team which has been through uh, a few, uh, let's say, uh, market events, and with some sort of experience, then probably uh, you have chances to carve a very nice uh, position on the market and uh, that might be successful. At the end of the day, we need to have a renewal of the players. It's, uh, you know, the private markets have been thriving because uh, fund managers are innovative, but also because there is this constant renewal. So you cannot just have like 20 uh, players who mobilize most of the assets because they have a long track record. Um, because the risk is that they don't take certain risks anymore. They have this track record. They don't want to ruin it. So they will cream off some of the deals and they will do the ones which are fairly in line with what they know how to do and which will not mess up their track record. We need the ones who are able to size these opportunities, which are a little bit different, which are more challenging, where you need to deploy a little bit more effort and resources. And then uh, for that, maybe you need these new players. And if they're asset managers with resources, it's even better because we know that due to regulations, today to enter the market, you need to to have a higher step, right? It's uh, mm -hmm. You used to be able to create a VC firm at 50 million. Now, if you want to comply with European regulations, it's a bit short. You need to maybe aim at already 75 or 100 million. So if an asset manager backs you up, sponsors you, give you a lift, everybody is a little bit uh, lucky to have that and the benefits, the market benefits overall from that. Yeah, I guess there isn't, um, there's no innovation if there's no competition and people become complacent. Exactly. Yeah, that's a very good summary. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been really interesting and um, thank you speak very much. to you soon. With pleasure.